Don't shoot the deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Now, Steve, I hate to break it to you, but I think we might be in the presence of a duo who are more dynamic than us. Oh, I've actually got to say I do agree, Russell. Yes, tonight we are joined by two people we really admire. We're joined by Shannon Doherty, who's a Year 5 teacher and senior leader who leads on PSHE Maths and Teacher Development for 11 schools in her trust. Uh, she's also the author of 100 Ideas for Primary Teachers, Maths, and we'll be exploring that later. And she's a huge fan of teacher-led CPD events. We're also joined by Neil Armand. He's the first-term uh, primary deputy head teacher, and we'll be talking about that. And he's particularly passionate about curriculum, evidence-informed practice, and assessment. Neil also speaks regularly at educational events. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for yeah, thank you for having us. Excited to be here. Awesome. It's great to have both of you here today. And we're really looking forward to chatting about a range of themes. Now, without wanting to make this sound like an interview for OK Magazine, I feel like we need to hear the story of how you two came together. So fire away. Let's hear it. Who's telling the story? You better, and I'll just agree with it. Right. <laughs> usually, usually we tell this story and he jumps in and tells me I'm wrong about things. Um, I'll give you the headlines. We've been friends for a couple of years. We've gone to conferences together. We did bread maths together. We got close and then lockdown happened. Mm. So then when you were allowed to go out and see someone for an hour, I would bring him cake or we'd play throw a catch or we'd eat an ice cream. And it was just, you know, delightful. I don't think he thought romance was evolving, but I certainly did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then we decided to like bubble up because I lived on my own and, and then we are here a year and a bit later. Yeah. There you go. Full agreement. All of that. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. But guys, it's actually very clear to us that you two love teacher-led CPD. And you've attended many events of this nature. Now, for many teachers, the idea of choosing to do this kind of thing in your own time might seem a little bit odd. Why do you do it? It's going to sound really bizarre, but it is a lot of fun. Mm. Genuinely, I really love it. I always say, what's that saying? Like, you don't know what you don't know. But the minute you kind of start to know, you start to scratch away that surface about something, you just want to, well, for me anyway, and obviously people who attend these, they just want to know more. And it's one of the best ways that you can learn as much as you want to about a particular subject, which is why I'm a big fan of research eds and I've been to many and spoke to many um, because you can tailor it how you want to well obviously um with regards to schools schools will have their own um action plans and improvement plans that you know are there for the school which may not necessarily tie up with what perhaps the teacher may want to do in that specific time so it just kind of gives you that that freedom to go and pursue your own kind of passions with regards to teaching and learning which may not necessarily mirror what's on your school improvement plan but at the end of the day whatever you do you know if you think it's going to have an improvement on the kids then why would you not want to give that a go? Yeah, I think ultimately we we love what we do. And I think most people do. I'm not saying those who don't go to conferences on Saturdays don't love what they do. But we love it and we just want to get better at it. And there is a real social element to it. You know, some of our closest friends we see at these things, some of my favourite people in the world, we, we bump into at conferences, we get to go and watch them talk and listen to their experiences and you get to debate and challenge. And I just think, you know, it's not every Saturday. It's probably one a month, maybe. Probably was two a month for me pre-COVID. <laughs> um, but, like, why wouldn't you want to travel the country, see lots of different places, meet lots of different people, and talk about things that you're really interested in? And you get to say, you just get to meet, especially with the, that social side afterwards, you get to meet lots of interesting people people it's been going to those things a while like you get to know names so the last one we went to was research ed surrey Mm. and afterwards i just was able to chat to becky allen for like an hour and an hour hour and a half over a pint Mm. (laughs) that just doesn't happen normally (laughs) and you know the wealth of knowledge that she has about the systems in place about you know teaching and education are phenomenal so to be able to get you know, that almost felt like, are you going to invoice me afterwards after this chat? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, 
a, a pint was all she wanted. What I will add there though, is that you did educate that group of people on that bench about early reading and early maths. This was this was a two-way street. Too fair, it was a two-way street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like, you know, if you think about a brewer, you're in you're in the pub generally. There have been a couple not in pubs, but you're in the pub. Yeah. And you're you're just sat around with your mates talking about things that you're passionate about. And the thing about a brewer is that like unlike a researcher, you don't go and choose the workshops you see because it's just one speaker at a time in one room with say 40 people. But you get to listen to such a, a range of experiences. You could listen to early years right up to sort of like lecturers at uni, mm. people in, involved with SEND, people involved with teaching and learning, people who are teachers. There's been people who are librarians, who are support staff, coaches, you just you just get to see everyone and listen to a really interesting bunch of people and you take something from everything hey i and when i first joined twitter shannon and i first came across you i just thought that yeah that was your life like <laughs> this is someone that is a full-time event attender uh, every time you posted a picture or something and it felt initially to me like the whole world of twitter and podcasts and all of this stuff it was almost like an invisible like separate world I didn't even know existed and it's easy to forget that that's not necessarily reflective of the full world of teaching isn't it and teachers but equally I would say to anyone maybe you've just started dabbling in this podcast and this kind of thing's new for you is there is a whole world of people out there that are really supportive and I think my initial impression was like gosh there's all these people and they've got connections and friendships and I I, I don't belong in that world or I can't connect with those people but that couldn't have been further from the truth you know I found that world to be incredibly welcoming and and you know we've never had someone that we've approached through the podcast that have turned around and sort of had a, a stuffy reaction and refused to come and talk to us so uh, I'd encourage you know everyone that's inspired by what you've been saying to get out there and try things and people quite often say don't they if there's a research ed or something coming up oh, I want to attend but I'm going to be on my own and I'm scared of being on 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 my own what would you say to that because you've probably felt like that in the past or seen others that have been in that position yeah um the first research ed to that I went with research ed Kent three four years ago maybe now I went on my own didn't know anyone I was just you know took a punt and thought you know I'd <laughs> vaguely heard of Claire Seeley, a few, few things. We had a few interactions on Twitter. I saw she, she was speaking there. So I was like, right, well, I'll go. And I know, I don't know her well enough to go, hi, Claire, it's me from Twitter. But um, I knew her well enough to be like, okay, well, I'm going to come and see you because I like your, um, yeah, what you have to say. But yeah, everyone there was just so welcoming. Mm. It wasn't an issue whatsoever. So if there is anyone who feels uh, nervous about you know going to their first event, you know, don't worry because there'll be loads of people in that same situation as you and everyone has been in that situation before. Awesome. Now, as we said before we hit record, there's absolutely no threads in this episode whatsoever. <laughs> We're going to jump all over the place. So from edu events, let's head over to leadership. Now, uh, Neil, I think we should start with you because you've just got your first term uh, or almost first term as a deputy under your belt. And as two deputies, we're excited to hear what you've made of that. I think it's the best job in the world. Let's see whether you uh, agree with that. And after that, Shannon, it'd be great to hear more about your leadership role because it sounds really diverse and uh, exciting in terms of what you do across the trust. But yeah, Neil, start us off. How how's that almost term been so far yeah it's been incredibly enjoyable I've certainly noticed that that role of deputy it's almost like the lifeblood of the school really I think I don't mean that with regard to anyone else but you are that conduit between the SLT and between the teaching staff that are working incredibly hard you know the pandemic is not over far from it mm juggling all of those balances of actually you know at the point where we can maybe start to think about how you know, improving teaching and learning or whatever your priority might be to still juggling the pandemic. It's, yeah, incredible what they do. I really enjoy it. It's certainly something, I think, for my skill set, the definitely like the operational side of things. I remember my, I think it was the second day, the, um, the head teacher rang me to say, our caretaker has like busted his back getting up, so you have to like open all the doors. <laughs> I've got no idea what I'm actually doing at this point. So that, and I think for me, the reason why I really wanted to go into particularly deputy headship was to get that overview because mm. you can have the best ideas on how to improve teaching and learning. You can have the best, uh, you know, curriculum written down on a bit of paper, but if you don't actually know the ins and outs of the school and you don't know who to call when the boiler goes and you don't know 
you know, how are you going to sort out lunches when your cleaners are off ill? All of those things, you know, they have to, you have to drop those things. And so for me, a lot of my time that I'm spending right now, it's consciously just kind of understanding those systems and those routines of that day-to-day running of a school, which I'm really enjoying. Mm. Um, as I say, it's, it's totally different to the teaching and learning side. I've, you know, I've only just gotten my head around, you know, timetabling things properly and efficiently. Mm. And I'm, you know, I, I send the, the PPA timetable out and, you know, people still say I've missed something off or I've done something <laughs> yeah. wrong. So I'm, I'm grateful that the staff there, you know, they're able to come back at me and say, and say you know, you've done this wrong because, you know, I'm, I'm there to learn, which is what I want to do. And once I we have done i don't know whether then i want to, as you say i think it's a really good place to be I'm, i think i've already been put off head of school and slash uh, headship roles i don't think they're probably quite for me i think yeah deputy head seems to be the uh the nice kind of point where you still have enough teaching and learning to do but you're still getting to learn all of that day to day how schools actually do uh, run mm-hmm. I think I'm doing all right. Certainly the conversations that I've had with my head of school and executive head, you know, they say everything's going really well. You ask any of our teachers, teaching assistants, they may say something else. (laughs) 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 Can I ask you a couple of follow-up questions linked to that? uh, First of all, it'd be interesting to know, are you you still doing um, some teaching alongside what's your commitment? Yeah, so uh, one from entry school. Oh, right, yeah. So nice and small. We have a student teacher doing their PGC through us and they're in year six with me. So I'm effectively, you know, full-time teacher, but she then has, she's PGC student. And I don't ever remember the PGC course running, you know, going so quickly, so fast, but you know, they already, there's the expectation they already do 80% of the teaching. So we're not quite there yet, but you know, there's still the time and effort that goes through then making sure that they get everything done with we're quite fortunate in that uh, we have our own PGCE, so through our teaching school okay. with um, Buckingham University. So there's quite a few systems and procedures that are in place that, you know, the school are already quite familiar with, which you know, really, really is really, really helpful. I can kind of see how what we're doing is going to really help them next year in terms of like the early career framework when they get onto that in their um, ECT year, not NQT year. That's one of, yeah, abbreviations. I'm still getting all the abbreviations <laughs> wrong. I'm still, I'm still asking, what is this abbreviation? You know, because in my last school, it wasn't this. So what <laughs> yeah. Hey, so Shannon, why don't you tell us a bit about your role then and, and your leadership across a trust? 11 schools, that sounds mammoth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, so that was a new role in September. Okay. So my kind of day-to-day job is, I'm a class teacher. I teach you five this year. Um, and I'm leading maths and BSHE and some other bits and bobs as you do because I'm in a one from entry school as well so you kind of just wear every hat don't you and I am like sort of senior leader without a real title just senior leader um, <laughs> and I so I do have a bit of influence across the school which is quite nice outside of maths as well and then this September I've started this role across the trust, which is leading this teach development project, which is effectively like implementing and rolling out walkthroughs. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we've got nine primaries and two secondaries. So obviously the secondary is going to work slightly differently because they've got departments. But so it's just supporting the teacher development needs in every school with rolling it out. And we're kind of finding our feet this year. So before summer, I got to meet with our sort of directors and education team and I plotted out my three-year plan and then they were like right well you need some time to do this so I'm not in school on Tuesdays because that is my kind of dedicated time for the trust which is really nice it's weird though leaving on a Monday knowing I'm not back in until Wednesday every single week so I'm kind of finding my feet with that but I'm, I'm absolutely loving it and for the next sort of six weeks I'm in and out of all the different schools every Tuesday morning and I'm just I just love getting in Mm. to other schools and seeing how they're doing it and we're sort of not dictating how we how schools have to do it because that's not really our vibe as a trust but we're sort of saying this is what we recommend and then it's my job to go in and support and it's just so interesting and because of that I'm getting to do things like look at the trust's appraisal policy and co-write the trust teaching and learning principles and all that stuff which is mad because I'm a mere class teacher in a one commentary <laughs> school 
but I, you know, it's it's nice for me to have this little bit of extra responsibility because, mm. you know, I love my school and I love our trust. And I getting to have more influence is great. And I'm also the teacher development lead for one of our, our other schools because it's a tiny, tiny school. There's only like four four teachers and their head teacher, and so there's just not the capacity there. So I'm learning learning the ropes in tiny schools as well, which is not a life I think I'd want to live. Mm. I remember, Steve, to you years ago when we were doing some middle leadership training with our head. Do you remember that chat we'd gone to? I think she'd taken us for like an away hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, that sounds like it's going to go into a really exciting, raunchy story. Though. It's not. <laughs> and we just sat around and I remember saying to her at the time, oh, I love the idea of moving down to Devon or Cornwall one day and, and maybe being ahead of some little village school. And she went, no, you really don't. It would be the loneliest place to be and you'd you'd have... You'd have all the same responsibilities, policies, et cetera, but you'd be all on your own. And just the vibes I'm getting from the Twitter world of heads and leaders in small schools, that that is a real strong sense at the moment, isn't it? I'm not trying to put people off those. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure there are many happy people in those settings, but actually it does bring lots of challenges. And I soon realised that wasn't for me, actually. Similarly, Ross, I've got to say, um, do you remember I went for that headship a couple of years ago? Mm. Single form, very village school. 90 children there, joint year groups, etc. And I was like, this is amazing. This tiny little school, you can really nurture yourself. But um, the more I went into it and the more through the interview, I started panicking, thinking, there isn't an SLT. You, it's just you. Yeah. <laughs> it's you, friends of the caretaker, then you're teaching and stuff. And there's only three teachers there. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Mm. And um, it just made me reflect on actually what I would like because... It's funny, when Neil was talking, I was thinking, oh, when I was assistant head teacher with you, Russ, and you're like, part-time teacher, part-time SLT, you felt like you never had enough hours to do your assistant head teacher yeah, role. Yeah. Then you, you get promoted and you earn, earn the uh, deputy ship, and you're like, out of class all week. I felt, cool, what am I going to do with myself? I'm out of class all week. Soon realised really quickly, actually, it's not enough hours at all to do your role mm. because you're kind of been squeezed from both in a positive way. And it's finding that balance, but you are so right. You know, it's like pivotal to that that system and the school blood that goes through you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, really respect to it. You know, after a turn, it sounds like you did amazing. So, Very yeah, much. brilliant. Um, just curveballing again. Um, we go. We go. We're talking about curriculum now because one thing we are so visually aware of of your presence online, both of you, is that you've got a real passion for curriculum. And Neil, we love your chats about curriculum coherence in the research ed guide to the curriculum how does this passion for the curriculum show up for both of you in your roles i think when we talk about curriculum i think we kind of maybe immediately go to the foundation subjects because potentially some of us may or may not have given those the attention uh, they deserved under a, a previous mm-hmm. framework but I can't help but tinker. I look at things and I just, you know, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, why are we doing that there? So I just, I write some quite, I just, at the minute, it's just a notebook of all these different subjects. And it's just those questions. Why are we doing that there? Mm-hmm. What could we be doing instead? Could we be smarter? You know, just really support those teachers. It, it's quite, it's quite nice knowing that the teachers that I teach with, they don't have a massive online presence at all. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily know yet this kind of nerdy side of me when it comes to <laughs> edu events and Twitter and, you know, writing blogs and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to just being like, oh, this is quite nice that it feels like I, I have the opportunity to properly kind of nurture these. They're NQ, they're only maybe in like the third or fourth year of teaching some of our subject leads that we have you know, and we only don't have many it's I actually do lead quite a few other subjects as well being you know a one form entry unfortunately my head of school knows that I am uh, you know I have written a chapter about curriculum so her eyes were like yes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no we're fortunate that you know before I joined this particular school they were a school that you know was thinking about curriculum so it's, it's not the case that I'm going in to a school where the culture is kind of oh let's go on to an educational website and type in the romans and find out what I'm going to be teaching tomorrow where you know there will be or go on to a, a edu facebook and you know ask for a resource about whatever it may be you might want to edit that one because you have quite a big edu facebook <laughs> thing don't hey you? we love our edu facebook thing but you're absolutely right and i think it just reflects whenever i see that on facebook 
what it reflects more than anything is schools who haven't thought about curriculum and teachers absolutely and it's not that i want to point out it's not the teacher's fault no it's never the no, teacher's fault you're not right the teacher's fault that they are they happen to find themselves in that situation and and certainly a lot of what i will do to support you know curriculum wise with the school will be focusing on developing you know their specific curriculum but i think after the national curriculum now has been out for seven years now, I think roughly. And I just think it's crazy that we still have to rely on other people to do that. And there isn't this some somewhere, a bank of centralized resources. I understand that you know, schools in different contexts and all of that, but fundamentally the Romans that um, you, know, you teach Steve could be the same Romans or 80% of it could be the same that Russell does in his school. Mm-hmm. Unless there is something I think, unless your, your school is built on like a Roman site or something like that, and you can make it you know, so <laughs> tailored to something that's happened there. I think the fact that there isn't some sort of- National curriculum. <laughs> national yeah. curriculum yeah. or scheme that outlines do you know what even you know here is a potential learning journey that you could take your students on if you wanted to teach them uh, the vikings mm-hmm. here is another potential learning journey that you could take them should you want to focus on this aspect and so yeah in a lot of my free time i am doing a few bits involved which i hope to you know put out there to kind of help teachers with all of that element because it's something i say i i enjoy it mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think yeah, you know, we're all we're all in this for the right reason, right? Which is, you know, it's obviously make sure that you know kids get a good deal. So I think, yeah, when you where you can share things, you know, why why would you not? I don't not a massive fan of this idea of you know state schools in competition with each no. other, no. things like that. And and I think that just gives teachers some teachers don't want that freedom. Some teachers do, and, you know, that's a conversation that could be had, but, you know, some teachers don't want to be deep curriculum thinkers, They, which is why we may end up, you know, on some leaders don't want to be those kind of deep curriculum thinkers. Yeah. So I think if you have people, you know, Victoria Morris, such yourselves, who like that kind of thing, I think it's right that we can, you know, help in whichever way that we can. Yeah, definitely. Shannon, you wanted to come in there. Are you done? Thank you. I think that I'm even firmer than you on this, that I just think we should be teaching the same stuff. Again, there maybe there's there is an element for you to make it local, do your local studies, and they will have to be local to you, obviously. But I don't see why children nationally shouldn't be getting the same offer with their curriculum. You're saying here's a here's a learning journey you could take them on if you wanted to do the Romans, if you wanted to do the Vikings. Whereas I think this is what we should be teaching our children. So we know when they get into secondary school and all secondary history teachers, geography teachers, science teachers, whoever it is, know that everyone has had this offer. Because if you think about my, I know some some communities have really strong links with feeder schools. But if we look at my school, our children, I think, went to nine or ten different secondary schools last year from a one-form school. We can tell the secondary schools what our curriculum is. We can tell them what we've taught. But I just think we'd be in a far stronger position if the secondary schools knew that this is this is exactly what they would have learned. Mm. And you've got, you know, the links are made for you, so you're not making links between Victorians and volcanoes and the day the crayons quit. <laughs> Rivers. Hey, that was a great unit. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have... I wrote that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Before our time. But you, and you don't have teachers coming on Facebook. And you know, I think, you know, we, we like each other's posts on Facebook where, where we've commented. And, Absolutely. And when I challenge people and say, <laughs> would you need to write a snazzy topic title for this? If you've been given the, the topic title, The World's Kitchen then your school has a responsibility to tell you what that learning is. Mm. And I just think to make sure teachers don't find themselves in that position, there should just be a national curriculum rather than this kind of basic entitlement of bullet points of schools interpreting it how they want to. Yeah. And I would say as someone who did do that whole thing of going oh we don't really have an agreed curriculum I'm gonna write it with somebody and that was very much inspired by Claire Seeley and Andrew Percival and their fantastic work and their fantastic conference that they tour the country with 
we were really nervous, me and my assistant, Herr Becky, about how teachers would respond to suddenly being told. But we were just really upfront and gave the rationale behind why and that this was, you know, every child that came through our, our doors deserved the same deal and it shouldn't change year to year based on what the teacher liked and so on. And actually, it's been brilliant for teacher well-being because and workload, because mm-hmm. while it took some getting going in the first year or two, they know what to expect. They know what's coming. We've, we've tried to keep at least one person in each year group for now, which we have the benefit of being able to do for two form entry school. And they can reuse things next year. And it's pretty good and refine it and make it even better. And coming back to Neil's point earlier about um, looking at the curriculum and seeing things you can tinker, it's still got that room for a bit of tinkering. You know, Andrew Percival talks about that culture of curriculum development. It's always got that room for a little bit of flexibility. If you don't put everything on a really snazzy roadmap, uh, you can always tweak and adjust. <laughs> Have you got a snazzy roadmap, Neil? <laughs> no, no. I, I'm... He was like, that's controversial. There's a lot of people that are going to be upset by that roadmap remark. There might be, but... <laughs> there should be. This is madness. Yeah. Uh, we don't need snazzy roadmaps but yeah coming back to the, the point about teacher well-being it's just really nice for our teachers to be able to focus on how they're going to teach and that is that's the Absolutely. bit that teachers want to focus on and yeah. I, I don't not not everyone as you said Neil loves curriculum design but also not everyone's good at it like it, it is quite a hard thing to do to put together a curriculum and if you're trying to do that while holding down a full-time teaching position no idea how you meant to do that personally no um not everyone in fact most people aren't experts in all of those subjects we're primary teachers we're generalists of course we are now expected to teach to i'm going to say a a more academic level a higher level a deeper level if you can get higher and deeper at the same time than than we were taught at when we were at school and i hope teachers of that generation will accept that and so we, you know, and we wonder why you get people building Stonehenge out of biscuits. And it's because <laughs> they Googled Stonehenge teaching ideas because they don't have the time to sit and read or listen to a podcast about it. And actually, if that core learning were there and it, that bit, like you said, um, giving them the what to teach is there so they just consider the how then everyone will be in a far stronger position. And I know that some teachers like the autonomy and I know they like choosing their own topics. But like you said, Russell, you just explain it to the teachers and you say, well, this is what we're doing and this is why. And it's it's for the best for our children. So sorry, you can't teach a lesson with Skittles today about ancient Greece and they'll get over it. Love to hear what that lesson will be. I know. <laughs> I'm sure we could manage. I was really curious there. I was trying to work that out in my head. Skittles for ancient Greece. I think, and what that curriculum does is obviously, as we've mentioned, you know, I think it's 11, 12 subjects we have to teach. That No one can learn all of that. I think we should, as primary school teachers, aspire to know it all because I don't think it's too outrageous to suggest we for us to be at the standard that we would expect a year olds to be. I appreciate we may never get there. And I think that's part of the wonder of it all, you know, but that's great, but we're still going to try to get there. You know, I, I, I don't want to think about the time when I have to teach PE because our PE coaches, you know, <laughs> my PE subject knowledge is, you know, next is non-existent, but. Come to me, mine's great. <laughs> <laughs> I will certainly, you know, I will aspire to be the best PE teacher and you know, think about what do I want these kids to learn. But when you have it all written down in terms of what your, that core knowledge is, all of a sudden that wide domain of you know, Romans in history becomes so significantly narrowed yeah. that it does make it a far more reachable goal that you know, as teachers, you know, we, we can be. It will take us a very long time to get there and we may never, but... Yeah, we can get there. But also, if you give people that knowledge content and you're really clear about it. So we we, we picked up the, the model of Andrew Percival with the know that statements in units. It's very straightforward. Lots of bullet points and know that statements. It's given to you. So you read it and you learn it. And then actually, once you've got that core knowledge that's there, that breeds curiosity. You know, I can think of a year five teacher we've got where we wrote the Tudors unit for her. And then she wanted to go listen to a podcast about the Tudors and improve her subject knowledge even further because she was building on that knowledge that had been given to her. So yeah, it's not rocket science, but it does take a lot of groundwork initially to put that together. And that comes full circle to your point about if that was kind of already there, yeah. that would save quite a lot of work, but there we go. And it's just, I think it's just a, a change of mindset from that old Ofsted, maybe that's unfair, that old mentality of 
the wow show off lesson, the bells and whistles. And you know, I actually am not too bothered what they're learning as long as you, the teacher, are delivering it in such a way that it, you know, I think everyone's probably been through an old school lesson observation where it's like, I can't give it outstanding because it just didn't, I didn't get the shivers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't get that buzz. Yeah. <laughs> My spine was tingling. You know, maybe if you blank out the lights and you know lit some candles or you know something like that. Yeah, that might have done it. So I think there's possibly a bit of hangover still from that mentality of what yeah. good. And that's the scary thing. I think. I think that was you know, that was good teaching and learning. The fact that you'd spend about thirty quid mm. in a pound shop the mm. day before, finding all sorts of weird and wonderful tat before you would do something i think you you touched on like a mindset shift and that hangover from times gone by that you know aren't times gone by for some people but i think that because human nature is to block change a little bit you know we don't like change and i think there's a real i I don't want to offend anyone here but i will end up doing it which is my way sometimes but there's a real tendency to take offence to the fact that we need our curriculum to be written down. And there's people, I think, are taking it personally that there are now people saying, well, you need this, this and this in your curriculum. And they're saying, well, but we've always done it. this way, and It's always worked. My curriculum's always been lovely. And I'm proud of what my school's done for the last 30 years. And that's great. But like thinking has moved on and times have moved on. And I think part of that... Um, that reluctance to change is because some people are just taking it personally and don't want to accept that what they did could have been better. No, absolutely. And and you can't help but mention Ofsted as part of this discussion because it's been such an influence on it all. And, you know, I'm one of those people, I look at the new framework and I think, yeah, like that's, uh, it is so many positives about what it aims to do and that it's more research informed and so on. But I do acknowledge that people are talking about very varied experiences of it and the fairness of of how that's been delivered I think you tweeted about that recently Neil but at the same time I think you know you had a system before that rewarded the narrowing didn't you yeah you could get really good off their grades on really good sats results and 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 a pretty good day or, or two on a visit whereas that's not going to be enough now and I think that's upsetting because it's kind of like for people that haven't moved on of their own accord they're now a bit caught behind and go, hang on a minute now, you're punishing us for not having the stuff in place that I didn't used to have to. Whereas, of course, people that have been kind of excited by curriculum for a while, and I was really blessed in seeing Claire, Celia and Andrew when I did, because they were actually saying on their conference that a lot of the a lot of the stuff that's going to come out from Austin the next couple of years, they've been reading the same stuff as us. So don't be surprised when it kind of resonates. They weren't doing it for Austin. But I'm really grateful, timing-wise, working in an RI school, that I got thinking about curriculum and coherence and vertical progression and stuff like two years ago. But everyone should have been thinking about it two years ago. Because that's, you know, the framework came in in what, 2000 and when was it written? Well, like three years ago. Yeah, 2017, the two-year grace period. Mm. And then inspections happened in 2019. Mm. And there has been this kind of sit back, do what we've always done. And I think COVID obviously has played a part in that Mm. to an extent. But there are people now, I think, hitting out at curriculum Mm. and this like newfangled way of thinking and doing it because they are just scared that they're not going to do very well in their offset and that they've been outstanding for 14 years and and then someone's going to come in and question what they're doing and because they didn't read the framework properly when it came out they didn't go and look at their curriculum and now there's this fear and so I think people are hitting out and being angry but in the wrong direction. Mm. But I do think there's also truth in what Michael Merrick says on Twitter that you know what maybe this is just getting a little bit too far now and I think you have to be careful that at some point the thinking that you do put into it maybe you know this is coming from someone who you know loves this stuff the gains that you probably would get from it probably aren't worth the actual you know thing that you then put into it something I don't as I say I don't think it's needed that what are there about 60,000 primary schools in the UK? Like not every single one of those needs a bespoke curriculum just for their own area. Like I hate, I would hate the idea that, you know, there are 60,000 year five teachers who are writing 
uh, you know, the year five curriculum, you know, with their deputy head, you know, there are things out there, mm. feel free to use them. No one is saying you have to start something from scratch and it, it needs to be something that you have, you know, spent hours and hours writing, use things. I, you know, Christopher searches some awesome resources for, mm. um, you know, getting started with science, history and geography. There's the reach stuff, which, you know, I've been fortunate enough to um, have a sneak at, which is, you know, all kind of good quality stuff. And, you know, and they give you kind of like a, a textbook if you need it for those initial stages of kind of, you know, what this might actually look like. So there are things out there. Just make sure that you spend the time looking at what's out there. Take it, roll with it. Um, and obviously then once you're comfortable with it, adapt it ever so slightly for your context. You know, if you do happen to be, I'm trying to think for my, my example. So we, um, one of my old schools, my old job, you know, we were, one of our schools was just off Watling Street, which was an old ancient uh, Roman road that went from uh, Dover down up um, into the Midlands. So hmm. oh, through London and then up through the Midlands. So yeah, like we wrote about that. So we made sure that, they learned that the Romans paved this particular road because it's important because funny enough, that street that you walk up and down is what, where they assume is the, you know, the foundations for Watling Street are there. And then obviously then it's, uh, you know, even more exciting because, you know, Boudicca, you know, lost her final battle at the Battle of Watling Street. And so, oh, oh, oh you know, nice little connective link there. So you kind of get all that fun stuff. That's worthwhile. That's yeah. spoke and that's worthwhile yeah. doing, but, that's 15 minutes on a computer, not yeah. hours and hours and hours. You've landed on a re- probably what was one of my most profound sort of leadership lessons, because I was this classic leader who wanted to get the perfect model for everything in my head before I could execute it. And there's a place for being extremely thoughtful and planning things out. But I've learned the hard way that sometimes something that's really good delivered well is good enough. And that sometimes I'd hold off for like the perfect version. It would never come and I'd procrastinate and actually waste lots of time in the, in the meantime. So I think that's a great point. Okay. So let's go on to one of my favorite things, which is mathematics and math specialists. Love it. Shannon, you're an author on the matter. So it'd be crazy not to ask you a bit about math. Now at my school, we've done loads of work around the NCTM's five big ideas of math mastery. And I wondered if we could have a brief reflection on one of those ideas, which is variation. Now, I find it's an area of math mastery that's quite easy to misinterpret or to kind of not deliver very well. It'd be great to hear from you both, really, starting with you, Shannon, about what you feel good variation teaching looks like and any any tips from your hundred, maybe, about what <laughs> good variation teaching looks like. OK, so before I define it and talk about it, what I will say is, we don't bicker often, <laughs> but we were bickering about this an hour and a half ago. So this could get interesting. So variation for me is like that careful design and tweaking what we choose to expose our children to and why. What we want them to notice, like it strengthens what, what it is and what it isn't. But it's one of those things that I think, like you said, isn't always done well. It's easily misinterpreted, but I think that's because if you're thinking about the NCTM's five big ideas, which Neil Armandji will say isn't mastery, but like the five big ideas for teaching math. So we kind of agreed that's what we'll call them. Variation is like the icing on the cake and it's like the cherry on top of your ice cream sundae. It's not something you should be going in with first because it isn't easy to get right. And if your children aren't fluent, like truly fluent, and if they aren't thinking mathematically and able to reason and using certain sentences and all the right language, and if they are, and if you're not teaching in small steps and there isn't that coherence, and if they're not being exposed to the right representations and the right structures, and you know, if your teachers don't know the structures of arithmetic, then I wouldn't touch variation because there's work to be done. So I think that the reason that some may get it wrong is because they've gone in too early. It's something we've touched on, but then we had COVID happen. We we had a lovely training on it from Dill Dias at the London Thames Math Hub, who is one of my favourite people in the world. But it was just before lockdown and then lockdown happened. And it was like, well, obviously this is not a priority for us anymore because X, Y, and Z has happened. And our children have lost all of this knowledge. So we had to go, I need to park variation for a while. And yes, some of our teachers are ready for it and some of them are flirting with it. But 
our children need something else right now. However, I do find it all very interesting. And you've got people, you know, Mark McCourt, and that's the side that Neil Armand will sit on quite happily. But, you know, he says that conceptual variation isn't a thing because concepts don't vary, but you vary how you show the concept. And I think that's the key. It's that, so if you are kind of thinking, I want to get more involved with variation, I don't really know much about it. I would look at using things like standard examples and non-standard examples and non-examples. So you're kind of, um, you're giving your teachers and your children a little key to open it up a little bit, but not overwhelming anyone because it's such a big topic. I think there's not even like a real general consensus of what it is, what it is among the, like the true experts in maths. Like you'll probably talk about goo or something, won't you? And, <laughs> not the pudding. Not the pudding. That's the joke I make when I do CPD and I put up a quote from goo and I go, not the pudding, and no one laughs. It's Shelton. Stephen Russell laughs. Stephen Russell laughs. I've got to laugh, mate. It's my, uh, it's my duty as host. <laughs> I'll take it. But, but Neil Armand, you've written a, uh, sorry, I will call him Neil Armand. <laughs> Neil Armand, you've written a, a blog on variation theory. Oh, was that on Third Space? Yeah. Yeah, the one on Third Space. Yeah, yeah classic. Love that, Neil. <laughs> Very good. Stuff. Yeah. Great piece. So I wrote that down so I didn't have to remember any of it so I could just actually uh, <laughs> read it whenever it was called upon. So yeah, I have it in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, feel free to uh, pre-see that for us, Neil. In- yeah, well, there are, in terms of its, history first of all variation it's not something that's just specifically tied to mathematics pedagogy um there was this um, swedish researcher uh, Ferenc martin who came up with this idea of variation as a means of us learning everything and effectively um, his main argument is that the way we learn things is to discern them from something else yeah you know, the reason why we associate certain jobs with certain genders is because that's what those children always see. They always see the fireman. They always see the female, uh, nurse. The female nurse, et cetera. And, you know, you can take, especially, you know, now, you know, in terms of, you know, ethnicities and specific jobs, you know, certainly growing up in, you know, West Wales, we always saw the white fireman or the white postman, et cetera. Yeah. So because we weren't getting that idea of that that variation what we were seeing what a postman would be yeah. or a post person i suppose in uh, you know a postal officer a postal officer there we go officer so because, because you wouldn't see those representations of what who what this particular job can be to certain to different elements then we just kind of take in well it's only this one thing yeah Simultaneously, at the same time that he was writing all of that, there was a, a Singaporean researcher called, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, I do apologise, Gu Ling Wan, I believe. And he was in Shanghai, sorry. And so he developed this idea of teaching for variation, which is more, as kind of Shannon has said, your kind of procedural and your conceptual variation. So your conceptual variation, and again, this is where some people say, well, there's been a a miscommunication of what conceptual variation is um because obviously you know concepts don't vary but again the way that you might choose to represent mm. that concept might be so the basic one for that one is the so here's i think the best people who are probably doing variation you probably don't know that they're doing variation are probably your early years teachers because the amount of ways that they are showing children what the fourness of four is or the mm-hmm. sevenness of seven and the tenness of 10, you know, they've got 10 frames, they've got deans, they've got, um, you know, uh, place value cards out there. They've got 10 acorns. They've got, you know, they are showing what that 10 means in such a variety of ways that, you know, that's kind of really what that conceptual variation is. And then they may then extend that to, well, if this is, this is 10, this is 20. Let's kind of discern what the difference is between them. So then you'd have, so that's your kind of conceptual variation. And then you have your procedural variation, which is just really carefully thought out questions, which are designed to tease out specific elements of, in this case, mathematics. So a real common one is to kind of tease out that when you multiply a number, it doesn't necessarily have to get bigger. So you might have something like, you might take your students through a series of questions where I know there are nine liters of apple juice and every three liters is put into a particular jar. How many jars are needed? 
then you might say, well, there are nine liters of apple juice and every one liter is put into a jar, how many jars are needed? And then you might say, well, there are nine liters of um, apple juice. And you know, um, all of a sudden it's uh, half a liter is then put into jars. How many jars are you going to need? So you can kind of then see and discern that, right, something is happening here mm. where their initial idea of what this concept is suddenly changes. Yeah. And so that really is then the essence of procedural variation. And that's why I, you know, it's a particularly difficult thing to do. Yeah. Because you do see, because of its prevalence within the NCTM's big ideas, I do think you do see some people who just think, yeah, I'm going to throw the word variation on a particular worksheet. And they kind of say, oh, no, here's some variation worksheets, ties in with the NCTM's, you know, big five ideas. And it may well do, but if you as the teacher can't discern what you're exposing, you're trying to expose to and what it is that you are actually trying to differ, then yeah. just giving that worksheet is unlikely to really throw the benefits of variation mm. up. So it's not even one of those things that I think you could produce worksheets unless you were to offer, I think, quite a comprehensive like bit of text that went alongside to say, this is why I'm asking this question. This is what's, um, this is what's being kept consistent throughout here. So the, the structure of the problem is remaining the same, but this is what I'm changing all the time. And this is what I want to produce. These are the questions, you know, at this question here, this is where you should ask what's the same, what's different. Yeah. Unless you're producing something like that, I don't think worksheets that just say, yeah, here, you know, I found some variation worksheets online or from whoever is really going to bring about those benefits that variation can, I think, bring about. I think if you think if you want something that's got that level of text and that level of knowledge in it, then I think like the NT ETM spines are the best place teachers can go because they are incredibly thorough and they do give you almost a, a you know little chunks of script where you ask that question and then you ask this question and you do say what's the same, what's different. But I think the problem is like what you said about the variation worksheets is that too often they see variation and they think variety yeah, and they think it's just this pick and mix. And there is like a time and a place for that. If you're trying to, I don't know, assess the understanding of column addition, then you might have a bit more of a pick and mix. But if you're trying to get across the idea of like same sum or same difference, then you do want that kind of intelligent practice, that procedural variation. This is another reason why I think it's really important that schools have a strong scheme of work in place because I don't think any teacher should be left to do all of this themselves. No. I think, you know, we do a lot more of it ourselves in maths and English, and maybe we always will, but there should be that backbone there. You should know why you're doing something. And yes, our subject knowledge in maths and English is probably stronger than our subject knowledge generally in foundation subjects, unless maybe you specialise in something. But there are still so many people out there who don't know the why they're, yeah. they're tweaking things slightly. And until their subject knowledge is in a place where they do know all of these things, and it will take time, of course, and then it changes from year group to year group, something like variation is going to be very hit and miss. It's not going to be something that you can nail, I don't think, in a school until... No, and and then your staff change, and then you have to do variation training. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or worse, you have to go back to fluency. Yeah. No, no, don't, don't. It's shudders down my And why we don't teach like doubles and halves in the same lesson, and all of those things that we haven't been doing for ages. Yeah, no, we don't use <laughs> fractions anymore. That that's. Um, I do think that there are some like high, maybe like threshold areas of maths that variation can be done quite simply with um so maybe i know neil's top tips for variations just getting started with it um the equal sign is always a great one in terms of where you put that equal sign the reason why children think equal sign means answers because we'll always provide the whatever the calculation might be and then the equal sign yeah so you know an easy one that anyone can just do a bit of procedural variation with is just you know, really think about where you can put that equal sign. Think about how it's not just 
three plus four equals seven, but it's three plus four equals six plus one as well. So this idea of it being like equivalence, not that oh, we just do, we, after that equal symbol, we just kind of put an answer in because yeah. I think the minute you get over the idea that equals just means this is why I put an answer, I think a lot of mathematics uh, opens up to you and it allows you to become far more playful. Yeah. And this is the idea number. Hold on. No. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get the, I, I got the, the PDF up on my phone. Is it number 99? <laughs> right. Idea number 38 in 100 ideas for primary teachers' maths is what it is and what it isn't. So yes. it's that conceptual um, variation and it's looking at fractions like a half and looking at what a half is and what a half isn't. Or things like looking at a section of triangles, but some of them aren't triangles because some of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, are actually have a, a curved side, like a slice of pizza, and some of them are inverted kites, and some of them have got like the corner cut out, but children still see them as triangles. So I do think Shannon's top tip for variation is to start with that, because it's nice and simple, and we can come up with examples and non-examples pretty easily, because we do know it. But simple things like, especially in the early uh, key stages, early years, not sorry, early years, but like year one, year two, just things like changing the rotation yeah. of something can make such a massive difference. You can say upside down triangle. Mm. That's not obviously upside down because it's the triangle. But that's what they think, isn't it? Well, yeah. And then just because they've never seen a triangle that looks like that, or they've never seen a square rotated through 45 degrees. Yeah. And they all think it's a rhombus. And they think it's a rhombus. So they think it's a diamond. But it's just things like, you know, it's just like find the perimeter of this shape and it will give like one side. But because it's rotated through 45 degrees, they're like, I've never seen this shape before. Like, <laughs> yeah. what do I do? <laughs> Teachers will often say that when they're, you know, if they've done some standardized assessments or something, they'll go, oh, they know this, but it's just the way it was worded. Well, if it was just the way it was worded through them that much, then we're not doing enough variation, are we? Or we're not doing variation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. What, what the common strand, everything you've talked about there is beware of prototypes and how easily that kind of fixed um, idea of a thing becomes in a child's head, whether that's postman, whether that's uh, types of birds uh, in science or whether that's um, triangles, be, be aware of prototypes and, and, and anticipate the misconceptions that are likely to come up. And, ex you know, your, your, your questioning should, should plan to expose that and coming back to what you said about worksheets. If, if you're, using something pre-prepared that's not necessarily evil or bad but you've not done the thinking that went into that series mm -hmm. of questions so there's some there's some good tips there and i think you're right that it's not something you just nail that there's that many general tips you can give because what your procedural variation will look like <laughs> will vary quite a lot based on what area of maths <laughs> won't they so like my classic is with subtraction like it's really important for me that from quite a young age children start looking at when taking away or finding the difference is, is more efficient and logical. But often that doesn't come, you know, we don't expose that and explore that enough early on. And then you get children right up at the top end of the school trying to take away, you know, two, perhaps two digit numbers that are really quite close together. And they've just never had that playing with with different types of mm -hmm. questions but anyway i suggest we could probably do a complete podcast just on variation but a few thoughts there to uh tantalize our listeners look you two absolutely lovely talking to you tonight you're such a wonderful pair of edu babes both of you <laughs> and uh <laughs> we've enjoyed your company very much and talking about this wide variety of stuff i don't know what i'm going to call this episode because there's no strands or threads whatsoever i think it'll just be like shannon and neil talk stuff maybe something like that but if people want to find you where can they find you on twitter that's always a good thing to tell people i'm at miss Doherty, and you are mr underscore almond ed thank you i can never remember where the underscore actually goes so i have mr underscore almond ed been a pleasure thank you guys thank, thank you for having you. us don't shoot the deputy mm.